Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you. I have greatly appreciated getting to know so many of you and seeing your warm acceptance of me, your enthusiasm for the Word of God, your fellowship together, and the good eating this afternoon as we obeyed Paul's command to buffet our bodies. And I want to thank the ladies or whoever was involved in stocking the apartment where I'm staying with so much to eat that I thought I had to go out and get me a crowd to come in to help me eat it. It was very nice. I very much appreciate it. And I really appreciate this church and I pray God's blessings on you as you have a sound ministry here and a happy people. And that's hard to beat. Well, let's open with prayer. Dear and gracious Heavenly Father, you have created us and not we ourselves. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, you are the great shepherd. And we thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, not only to die for our sins, but to be raised again for our justification, so that we might be established in the kingdom of God where you have put us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to obey the great commission and the obligations of Scripture throughout that we might uh, present to the world a biblical world and life view for them to emulate and to follow in Christ. Father, give us victory in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, having been here for these several lessons, uh, we've been studying the Bible-based hope for the future in which we live. We do believe that there is a future that is glorious before us, We believe that the Bible teaches us that. It is God's Word. It is true. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And we have been showing that Christ has won the victory in principle, legally, in the first century, and has established His kingdom for all times, and that He has promised that the gospel will overcome all opposition. According to the postmillennial outlook, the postmillennial eschatology, there is coming a day in the future as the gospel goes forth and incrementally advances in this world in which we will experience a time of great peace worldwide, great prosperity, and great uh, and abundant righteousness among men and women. And we long for that day and we pray for it when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Christians can be confident that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Apostle Paul told us that. You must believe the promise of Jesus when he says in John 3.17 that God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that the world through him should be saved. Now John 3.17 comes right after John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. And that John 3.17 comes on the heels of that glorious gospel verse because it's telling us that Christ is going to win the victory. And your message that you have for the world is to obey Christ and bow down before him. As Christ has powerfully saved you, he will save others, untold millions of others. And Christians, I'm hoping that this not only encourages you, but motivates you to seek to do the work of the gospel, to do the work of ministry in the world. Especially as you have so many children here, which is great for the future of this church and the future of Christianity. As you bear children, as you rear them, as you train them up and send them out into the future. They are like arrows that are shot into the future and taking uh, the battle forward as uh, the Christian faith is promoted in the world. And as you promote the Christian culture, I hope that you will delight in the Lord and thank Him for having established such a kingdom for you to rejoice in. Now many sing, this world's not my home, I'm just a passing through. 
and others saying, I'll fly away. Well, these are half-truths. The world is our home while we're here, and we have to recognize that and live accordingly. And one day we may fly away, but until then, we are here marching in the earth to do the will of God. And so we need to recognize that we are here and should be singing Onward Christian Soldiers. And some of the hymns like we sang tonight, did you notice what a post-millennial flair they had? That was a happy accident, wasn't it? But that, the, some of the greatest of the hymns of the church are post-millennial in orientation. And, and I wish the church would hear the, what they're singing. Now, this hope-filled truth is glorious. I don't see how you could sit down and think, well, you know, that is glorious, but I don't like it. I, I just don't understand that. It's uplifting. It's motivating. But we're not post-millennial. We're not hope-filled simply because it's good and exciting. That's great. But we are so because of the biblical and theological foundations that we have laid in this series here. We are post-millennial because we believe the Bible teaches it and the theology that flows out of the Bible undergirds it as well. Despite that, there are evangelical, godly, Bible-believing Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, who do not accept post-millennialism. They think it's radically wrong. And they have certain objections against it. And this is good that they challenge it because that's what, as the pastor said a few moments ago, we need to look at what we believe and be able to withstand the challenges and be able to understand and promote our view according to Scripture. And so tonight I want us to consider some of the leading objections to the post-millennial hope. And I hope that you'll find these helpful. And I would imagine at least some of these you've heard of before. I've picked this up along the way over uh, preaching over 30 and 40 years in the post-millennial community and I've, I've heard these objections as the leading ones that continually arise. And so let's consider these. Let's begin first with objections that are pragmatic. Pragmatic or practical if you want to say that. These are most common in a bumper sticker world because they're easiest. They don't take a whole lot of thinking through the issues and therefore they can uh, be come up quickly in a conversation with someone if you're telling them of your post-millennial hope. And the first is this. Post-millennialism is destroyed by historical decline. When we tell people we believe that Christ has won the victory and he is gradually winning more and more of the victory in history, people will say, well, how can you say that and look out at the world round about you? Christianity's been here 2,000 years. John F. Walford, a great scholar of the dispensational community, wrote once, one wonders how post-millennialists can read the newspapers and come up with the idea. Well, I'd like to tell him we didn't. It wasn't because of the newspapers, it's because of the scripture. But I know his point is, how can you read the newspapers and actually believe that? See what's going on around you. Dr. J. Adams uh, writes, The advent of two world wars virtually rang the death knell of, upon conservative postmillennialism. Well, I've got to admit, I'm feeling a little wheezy, but I don't think it rang the death knell of postmillennialism. And Hal Lindsey said, there used to be a group called postmillennialists. World War I greatly disheartened them, and World War II virtually wiped them out. Well, you see, they're looking at episodes in history. They're looking at contemporary history, and they're wondering, how can you believe in a hope-filled future? 
You know, the World War II objection is very frequent. Of course, a quick, easy answer is, and it's not the answer I want to give, but you can say, well, who won World War II? The, the, the parties, the nations of the world that have sent out the greatest missionary forces of all times, Britain and America. We won against evil Nazism and their persecution of the Jews and, and their evils that they foisted upon the world back then. But there's some more to say than that. This problem of looking at historical decline to analyze and critique and undermine postmillennialism is based on an improper understanding of history and an improper understanding of postmillennialism. Let me explain. Notice first, such historical arguments involve too narrow a sample. Too narrow a sample. Usually these kind of look at the newspaper arguments are based on an individual lifetime or perhaps as far back as the last century, like the World War II argument. But we must compare Christianity in the world today with the way it was in the first century, when Jesus had 12 disciples and one of them apostatized at that. We must compare it to what was going on then, and Nero casting Christians to the lions, and the great persecutions of the first two, three, and four centuries. Yet Christianity grew from 12 disciples to hundreds of millions, perhaps billions today. From a time of public culture, uh, torture to a time of Christian cultural influence. I'm often asked on a radio program, I haven't been on as many radio pra- programs recently, but uh, there was a time, during, especially during the 90s and the early 2000s, I'd be on a lot of radio stations being interviewed about postmillennialism. And a caller would call in and said, uh, how can you believe in the postmillennial hope and look at the world round about you. How can we do that? Well, I, I asked the person, I said, aren't we on a Christian radio program right now? You're sitting in your air-conditioned home, probably got your leather-bound Bible open, and you're calling me, and we're cordially chatting about Christ and His victory on the radio in this nation with thousands of churches and hundreds of Christian publishers, and you think things are awful? Well, you need to go overseas to some areas where they are awful, such as in China and some other places. But as a matter of fact, for, for us to say, this, we can't have any hope in the world in which we live is simply not looking at the big picture. We've got to go back to the first century and got to see that the seed that was planted back then has grown greatly since then. Hundreds of millions of Christians in the world today. But secondly, such historical arguments assume a wrong definition of postmillennialism. In the definition of postmillennialism, you look it up in any theological dictionary, it does not say, by the year 2023, Christianity will prevail throughout the world in dominance. No. You see, the definition doesn't say it will be done by a certain time. It just says it will be done before the end. And until the end comes, you cannot disprove it on the basis of historical analysis. Remember, postmillennialism teaches gradualism. I've mentioned that several times, that there are spurts, there are sporadic developments in the faith and as it grows in the world. Then there's times of recession, and then it picks back up, much like your own spiritual growth. You're not stronger spiritually every single day, time after time. You have times where you slip and fall. Likewise, it is on the global scale for Christianity in the world. And then thirdly, such historical arguments 
are a double-edged sword. How can a dispensationalist object? Now, I used to be a dispensationalist, so I kind of speak from my past here. But how can a dispensationalist object to postmillennialism and looking at world uh, issues right now? How often have they called for the rapture? Hal Lindsey wrote a book, 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. Where's Armageddon? Another book, Is This the Last Century? Hal Lindsey didn't get over it in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, he wrote a book called Planet Earth 2000, Will Mankind Survive? Lindsey said in that book, just for the record, I'm not planning to attend any year 2000 celebrations. In fact, looking at the state of the world today, I wouldn't make any long-term earthly plans. Well, he can say that at his age because he doesn't have to worry about it too much longer. But the rapture expectation of the dispensational community keeps on experiencing growth. It's amazing. They keep on predicting the end, keep on failing, and yet people keep on believing it. In fact, the fact that the world has not yet had the return of Christ does not disprove he's going to return again, does it? I don't think so. In fact, I know not. And so we need to recognize that... uh, Our hope is in heaven. It's not in the newspapers. It's in the Bible, in heaven. It's in the community of God's people. And so that's the way I would respond to that particular objection from historical newspaper analysis. Well, let's consider now the post-millennial denial of the imminent return of Christ destroys a spur to holiness. In other words, people say, if you... Believe Christ is going to return at any minute. This will prompt you to live righteously. Because who knows, Christ might return at any minute and catch you doing whatever it is you're doing. You ought to be doing righteously. You see, Eminence teaches that since the ascension of Christ back to heaven in the first century, He could have returned at any minute. Any minute after the ascension, He could have returned on the Eminence principle. And the claim is, the expectation of his imminent return encourages righteous living. Well, you can feel the pragmatic punch of that, I would hope. Oh, well, you know, if Christ is going to return any minute, I'd better be ready and living right. Well, let's consider if this is really a good spur to holiness. First, imminence and its fundamental mistake. Could Christ have returned at any minute after the ascension? such as later in the first century or in the second or third centuries. Christ's parables often warn us that he's not going to return until after a long time. In Matthew 24, 48, in that parable, he says, If that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time. Matthew 25, 5, Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Matthew 25, 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. You see, these parables are bracing his disciples for the long haul. He gives these parables to warn that there's going to be delay. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we find that the Bible speaks of the passing of times and epochs. Now notice these are plural. Many times, many epochs. Acts 1, 6, and 7, just before the ascension, Jesus says, 
for the Bible says. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time, notice their imminent expectation, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed under his authority. Many times, plural, many epochs, plural. In other words, long periods of time are expected. And Christ warns them of that. And Paul warns in his epistle to Timothy of difficult times. Again, in the plural. 2 Timothy 3.1 Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And so there are times, there are periods. Times will be bad, then they'll be good. Then they'll be bad, and then they'll be good. But there are times after times, multiple time periods that must try to transpire. But notice also, secondly, eminence and its biblical critique. Jesus warns that eminence expectation is foolishness. I mean, that's literally from the mouth of Jesus. Listen to the parable of the uh, ten virgins, five foolish and five wise, and see which ones you think are wise. Matthew 25, 1 through, uh, 1 through 5. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now who are the foolish ones? They are the ones that didn't prepare for the long run. And the prudent ones were the ones that did, that took the extra oil as necessary. So Jesus effectively is warning that an imminent expectation is foolish. But thirdly, notice this. And I think this has particular punch. Eminence and its radical misapplication. Its radical misapplication. Remember the point of the eminence doctrine in this discussion we're having is that if you don't believe Christ is returning at any moment, you're removing a spur to righteousness and holiness. Well, let's consider this. Is piety, holiness based on false expectations for 2,000 years? That doesn't sound right that false expectations can spur your holiness. Surely piety is not encouraged by false hope. Furthermore, don't we live before God every single heartbeat of every day? You don't have to wait for Christ to return to think He might see what you're doing. We live before Him every minute of this life. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and evil. No matter what you expect about Christ's return, He is always watching you. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all things are open before Him with whom we have to do. You are not going to run and hide from God or hide your unrighteous actions. Furthermore, isn't it true that you could die at any minute? Consider the parable of the rich barn owner. He planned on building bigger barns for future wealth. But in Luke 12, 20, we read, God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will, you, uh, who will own what you have prepared? He did not prepare, for, he did not live for God. And he died. And that can happen to you. In fact, 
I guarantee it is statistically more likely that you will die than that Christ will return during your lifetime. I say statistically because now I'm going to go back to the first century and the hundreds of millions of Christians that have lived, none of them saw the return of Christ, but so many of them have died. Furthermore, we believe in judgment day, regardless of when Christ returns. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this fact should spur a righteous living without guesswork. I know I'm going to stand before God. I know I'm living before God right now. I know I could die at any minute. That ought to spur you to, to righteousness instead of thinking, well, maybe Christ will return. He hasn't done it in 2,000 years, but maybe he will this week. And so you see, I don't see the imminency doctrine being very helpful for encouraging righteousness. Well, let's consider capital C. Postmillennial social concerns rest on liberal foundations. This is a charge brought against the postmillennial hope. Well, your view really is based on liberal foundations. Many evangelicals complain thus against postmillennialism. Dr. John F. Walford, past uh, president of Dallas Theological Seminary and a prolific writer, wrote, Postmillennialism lends itself to liberalism with only minor adjustments. Now, here's a, a Ph.D. at a major dispensational seminary in America, and he says, Postmillennialism lends itself to liberalism with only minor adjustments. Robert Leitner, an associate of his there, teacher there, said postmillennialism found it impossible to stem the tide of liberal theology. Well, this, these kind of observations can be dispatched rather quickly. The first is this. Consider this. Such arguments are wrong by definition. Now, they said that postmillennialism can lends itself to liberalism with only minor adjustments. Postmillennialism means Christ will return after the millennium. What liberal believes Christ is coming at all? That's not a minor adjustment. Liberals simply do not believe that. Now, secondly, such arguments are wrong foundationally. Real postmillennial the real postmillennial argument is exegetical. It's rooted in Scripture. I don't care what liberals say. I don't care what the newspapers say. I care what God's Word says. And we've been showing in this series here that there is a strong case that can be made for the postmillennial hope from the Old Testament and the New Testament, from the Great Commission, from so many verses therein. Now, it might be that the social gospel has aped or imitated the postmillennial hope, but the fact remains postmillennialism is derived from Scripture, not from emulating any man-made construct. Well, now let's consider, secondly, objections that are theological. Of greater consequence than pragmatic objections are those with theological implications. Theology arises from comparing Scripture with Scripture so that we build up our doctrine from the Word of God by comparing this with that in Scripture. If theological incompatibilities arise against postmillennialism, then it's greatly weakened. Theological implications are important for the integrity and coherence of the biblical message. Now, I'll only be dealing with one theological implication because I want to get to some of the more exegetical ones uh, quickly. I'll only deal with one, but I want us to consider this one. It says... 
the arguments brought against us, the post-millennial hope is undermined by the doctrine of sin. John, uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, a professor at Dallas Seminary, says, The new trend in theology admits that man is a sinner and can't bring about the new age anticipated by postmillennialism. Herman Hanko, an amillennialist, says, Postmillennialism fails to reckon properly with the fact of sin. Now, get the, get the sense of the punch here. We're, we're saying, or at least Skinny Kinney up in front of the church is saying, that I believe that there is hope for this world and that the gospel will win the victory. But the all-mill and the dispensationalist says, don't you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, of sin that affects every man, woman, and child in this world? How can you have hope for the future in light of the, of the uh, doctrine of sin? Or how can we respond? What is the post-millennial response? Well, I would open with, number one, which is more powerful? This, I'm sorry. Which is more powerful, sin or the gospel? Sin, uh, the gospel, I'm going to get it right here in a minute. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Which is more powerful, the fall of Adam or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings? We have to think of it in terms of scriptural implications. Christians, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How many does Christ have power to save? How many? It's unlimited. He has power to save them all, if he so wills. Is he the Lord of a few lords and the king of a few kings? No, no, not at all. Well, secondly, consider this. Are not fallen, depraved sinners nevertheless converted to Jesus Christ? I ask, were you a sinner? Now, don't worry, I'm not asking if you're now a sinner. That's your pastor job. But I'm asking, were you a sinner? Are you saved? Do you know anybody else that was a sinner but yet is saved? Yes, you do. God can save you. He can save him. Even your pastor. He's just that powerful. Were Jade White Pentecost and Herman Hanko fallen sinners as they complain against postmillennialism with this doctrine of sin problem? Well, certainly they were. And thirdly, do not the prophets, Christ, and the apostles point to a future redeemed world? In other words, remembering everything we've studied to this point, I haven't just been making it up saying, hey, this is my view. I've been trying to demonstrate it from Scripture. The last three messages I've been emphasizing from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, from the teaching of Christ, from the teaching of Paul, that we can and must, I believe, have an expectation for a glorious future. Christ, the prophets, Paul, the apostles, all have a view of the inherent sinfulness of man. They understand the doctrine of depravity, but yet they know the power of God. And they know that God can overcome such opposition. Did she say yay? <laughs> See, she's post-mill already. Or he, or whoever this person is. <laughs> Number three, objections that are biblical. Objections that are biblical. Now, the most serious objections are those that are scriptural. If the scripture undercuts post-millennialism, we're doomed. 
So let's consider a few passages that perhaps have been in your mind and you thought, I wonder about this. And the first is Matthew 7, 13 and 14 speaks of the narrow gate. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Wow, a wide gate to destruction taught by Jesus Christ. How can the post-millennialists have any hope beyond that? The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The Lord Jesus acknowledged that few would find the true way. John MacArthur has stated, It is like a narrow way and only a few enter into the kingdom of Christ. Okay, this is a Bible verse, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Even Christ is teaching it. Not only a Bible verse, but it's a red letter Bible verse as well. Well, how can we answer this? Seems reasonable. I'm saying that I believe one day the world as such will be saved. And yet this says, broad is the gate to destruction and many are going that way. Well, first, we must note the literary setting. Always note the context of a Bible passage. And let's look at the literary setting here. Consider Matthew 7 speaks of many who go to destruction and few who are saved. But in the very next chapter of Matthew 8, 11, he says, I tell you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. In one chapter he says few, the next chapter he says many. What we have to recognize is that few and many are not categorical terms. They're not ultimate statements. They're dealing with particular localized issues. In fact, there are other verses that teach there are enormous numbers of people who will be saved. What about Psalm 22, verse 27? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the earth will worship before you. Revelation 7, 9. Behold, a great multitude which no man could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. This is the few that we think are all that will be saved. John 3.17, again, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Well, something else is going on in Matthew 7 in the narrow gate and the broad gate issue. We've seen that we can't just jump in, take that verse out of context and run with it because other things are throbbing in the Bible we must deal with. Well, secondly, we must note the historical context. Not only the literary context, but the history in which it is given. Christ's statement is given at a particular time in history. He is speaking to his first century followers. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We know that it is a distinct, unified, historical section of Matthew's Gospel. It opens and closes historically. Matthew 5, 1 and 2 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... So we're at a particular setting in the first century while Jesus is in this world. And then at the end of it, Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 1, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority. And so there's a beginning point and an end point. He's dealing with those people in the first century, 
And as a matter of fact, at that time, there were few coming into the kingdom. Most people were going to destruction, even in Israel. But the whole rest of the world was in the gate, wide gate, going to destruction. You see, historically, we've got to recognize Jesus is speaking to his disciples in their own setting. Okay, and let's now notice thirdly, we must note the ethical purpose, the ethical purpose of his statement. What is Christ's purpose in such a declaration about the narrow gate and the wide gate? It's to prod his disciples ethically. He is motivating his disciples to encourage them to engage the problem. Christ is saying, look around men. Very few are following the ways of God. Very few are following me. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, he could have said using current terminology. And he's saying to them, let's go out and reverse that trend. In Matthew 9, 37 and 38 we read, Then he said to his, his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of harvest to send workers into the harvest. John 4.35 The fields are white unto harvest. What he's saying is, gentlemen, go do it. So many are dying. So many are rejecting God's ways and my ministry. Let's turn this around is effectively what Christ is saying. He's using that symbol of the narrow and the wide gate as an ethical prod not as a prophetic prediction. He's not saying that's the way it always will be. He's saying that's what's going on right now. This is a motivational comment, not a mournful complaint on Jesus' part. All right? Capital B. Matthew 13, uh, 36-39 teaches that Christ's kingdom... I'm sorry, teaches the kingdom's historical futility. The kingdom's historical futility. In Matthew 13, 24 and following, we have the parable of the tares. Matthew 20, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 24 and 25 and verse 30. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while uh, his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And then in verse 30, the landowner says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest, which is until the resurrection at the end of history. And then in verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and this field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. John Walbert has written regarding the tares, The parable does not support the post-millennial idea. Anthony Hokema has said, he's an amillennial, the parable of the tares teaches that evil people will continue to exist alongside the redeemed. Well, how are we going to respond to that? Number one, the Lord's point. Let's try to figure out what Jesus is getting at. It's true the parable of the tares does not overtly teach the triumph of the gospel. But that's not its point. If he were trying to teach the triumph of the gospel, he wouldn't have done it in that manner because that's not what it's talking about. But it doesn't need to because the next two parables do. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. They do teach the growth and expansion and dominance of the kingdom of God. The mustard seed grows to be a great plant. The leaven leavens all. It's put in the world, it's going to leaven all. And so the Lord's point 
is not to use the tares to teach the progress of the gospel. Secondly, the postmillennialist hope. Postmillennialism does not teach universalism. This is something we've got to keep in mind. Now we're talking about and hoping for and praying for a worldwide expansion of the gospel where the world is dominated by Christianity and Christian influence, but we're not teaching an each and every universalism that every single person in the world at some point in time will be saved. Postmillennialism admits that sinners will always remain until the end. In fact, that's the point of the tares. He's warning them, listen, I'm sending you out into the world. Be aware, there'll be tares there. You can't save every person. Go and save those whom uh, God brings your way. But recognize you're going to have opposition. You will have tares out there in that world. And then thirdly, the parable's implication. Despite the fact it doesn't overtly teach the post-millennial hope, it is suggestive of that. Because it declares the field is the world and the field is a wheat field. It's not a tear field. And so in an indirect way, it is saying the world is going to be a wheat field. And so I don't believe the parable of the tares undermines our hope. Well, thirdly, capital C, Luke 18.8 teaches Christ will come to an unbelieving world. An unbelieving world. Luke 18.8 says, when the son, well, Jesus is speaking, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Hal Lindsay, looking at this passage, says, in the original Greek, this question assumes a negative answer. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Lindsay says it assumes a negative answer. Uh, uh, Borland, I forgot his first name, Borland, another uh, commentator, says, Improvement in the worldwide spiritual climate is not here predicted. Not here predicted in Luke 18.8. Well, let's, let's consider this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Well, the question answered. Number one, the question answered. When I was on one of those radio call-in shows, someone called up. I was teaching post-millennialism. They asked me a question. He said, answer me this. When Christ comes, will he find faith on the earth? How do you think I answered? I said, yes. <laughs> Next. <laughs> see, to ask the question is not to answer it. You see, Christ, uh, Christians should recognize that this is not a prophetic assertion. It is a question. Again, it's an ethical prod to his disciples. He's telling his disciples, when I come again, what will your work will have accomplished? Are you going to do the work I've committed you to? And besides that, Hal Lindsay's wrong. The Blast of Brunner Greek grammar says that the Greek here of this text expects an ambiguous answer. It doesn't expect a yea or nay. It leaves it open. The grammar here says you can't tell from the question. And so Christ is using this to encourage his disciples to get the work done. However, number two... The statement understood. The question doesn't even deal with the future existence of Christianity at all. Now, I wonder if you've heard this Luke 18.8 and wondered about it. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That is used in the context of the eschatological debate, but that's not what it's talking about. Look at Luke 8 verse 1 that opens this. 
he was telling a parable to show that men ought all times to pray and not to lose heart. He's teaching about prayer. Jesus is teaching that fervent prayer should continue despite adversity. And when he asks the question, when the Son of Man comes, he's asking, will he find that kind of faith in the earth? Now remember, it's an ambiguous question. He's not answering it. He's saying, I've taught you to pray. When I return, will you be praying like that? So he's not talking about the existence of the faith in the world. He's talking about that kind of faith of prayer. Okay, let's consider D. 2 Thessalonians 3 teaches that evil men will grow worse. Evil, well, I should have said evil will grow worse. 2 Timothy 3 teaches evil will grow worse. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 13 says this. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now that doesn't sound post-millennial. How can that work into the post-millennial system? Dispensationalist Thomas Ice says, quote, The Bible speaks of things progressing from bad to worse. And he's pointing to this text. Our millennialist William Hendrickson says, These seasons will come and go, and the last will be worse than the first. In other words, we're to expect bad times getting worse and getting worse. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Well, how can we answer that? Number one, clarifying the time frame. How many times I've mentioned, watch the time indicators in a text. Jesus, now is the judgment of the world. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be raised up. And now here we have that last days concept again. Remember our study of Isaiah 2. We noted that the last days begin in the first century with the outpouring of the Spirit and continue until... Guess what's at the very end of the last days? The last day. And what happens on the last day? The resurrection, according to Jesus in John 6. So the last days begin in the first century with the outpouring of the Spirit and will continue until the last day and the resurrection. Christ, you see, is the dividing line of history. History is theologically divided. I'm thankful that our calendars are built on Christ's birth as being that which separates uh, B.C. from A.D. Now, of course, if you read modern books, they're trying to change that from B.C. to B.C.E. You know what that represents? Before the common era, instead of before Christ. That's, That's tragic. But the fact is, historically, Christianity has shown the division of history centers around Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in these last days has spoken to us in His sons. Therefore, this... These last days are all of church history until the end. It doesn't just speak of the very end. Well, that still hasn't really answered the question, except that we've already mentioned, well, it's saying there are times that will come and punctuate history. Well, what what are we to say? Number two, realizing the focus. Notice that during the last days, certain times will arise. In the last days, there will be perilous times. The anti-postmillennial complaint commits the er- error of quantification. Well, what's that? That is, they jump from a statement of some things and assume all things. If some men get bad, they assume all men are getting bad. If there are going to be some perilous times, they assume all times will be perilous. But that's, not, that's a uh, logical fallacy, the error of quantification.
Postmillennialism recognizes that perilous times do come. In fact, we're living in perilous times today. Remember, the kingdom advances gradual, it's up and down, gradually moving forward incrementally, but it has its ups and downs. But we do not excuse me. But this but this is not all we can expect. We have the hope of the gospel, which we've taught in other contexts. But now, let's really resolve this issue here. Understanding the statement. A deficient understanding of verse 13 suggests irrevocable worsening of world conditions. Verse 13 says, Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. How can that be postmillennial? It sounds like the number of evil men will be greater and greater. But no, he's talking about individuals themselves. Men that are evil resisting the gospel as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they themselves will get worse to their own hurt. This is talking about personal progressive degeneration, not increasing numbers of the degenerate. In fact, verse 9 says, They shall proceed no further. He's not talking about relentless gains by the unbeliever, by the evil men and imposters. He says, they will proceed no further. They get worse in themselves, but they will proceed no further. But then finally, fourthly, recognizing the recipient. Again, we must read the statement in its original context. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy regarding what Timothy is facing. Because remember, the last days began at the outpouring of the Spirit about A.D. 30. And Timothy is beyond that time. Uh, 2 Timothy is written somewhere around A.D. 65 or 6, sometime in that uh, time frame. 35 years after the outpouring of the Spirit, Paul is instructing Timothy what he faces. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy 3.14. You, however, after talking about these evil men proceeding from bad to worse, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul is explaining to Timothy, you're going to be experiencing evil men and they're going to get worse as you challenge them, but you keep on keeping the faith. You see, he's not talking about world conditions throughout to the end of history. That's not what's going on. Always look at the context to determine what is being said. And there he's talking to Timothy about what he's going to be facing. Well, in conclusion... In the earlier messages, we noted that the Old Testament and New Testaments both prophesy wonderful times and historical hope for the future. Prophecies by the prophets themselves, by God's covenant with Abraham, uh, by Jesus, by Paul. Objections have been emotional, misinterpretive, and wrong by definition. We must be like righteous Simeon in the temple when Jesus is born. He's in the temple there. Israel is dominated by Rome. Luke 22.25 says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Despite the fact that Rome had its iron foot upon Israel, he kept looking for the consolation of Israel. And it says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him. We need to look for the consolation of the Israel of God, even in perilous times. 
We must be careful uh, not to be like the little boy that's sitting at his grandmother's feet and she's cross-stitching. He's looking up at the bottom of what she's cross-stitching and he sees a lot of jumbled threads and clipped threads and thinks, what, what is she doing? But from above, there's a beautiful image that is being uh, drawn there with all the, uh, the proper... Uh, needlework that she's doing. So looked at from above, you see a beautiful pattern. Looked at from below, you'll see uh, jumbled colors and clipped threads. Not a very pretty sight. Now, I've greatly enjoyed being among you, but I'm going to confess something. I dread going home. Listen to this. On Thursday, I told my wife, I decided I want to be cremated. And she got me an appointment for next Tuesday. By the way, that is a joke. I'm not going to be cremated. But here's a joke that the kids can enjoy. Do you know what a 500-pound canary says? Chirp! There you go. All right. I don't do that one on radio very much. In fact, I always do it at the end of a conference because I can't talk for a few minutes. Well, did you have any questions you would like to ask? Oh, I forgot to turn off that recorder when I did that joke. It is going out on the radio. Were there any questions that you might have wondered about that we could deal with? Yeah, we've got. I think we've got some questions. If you don't care to restate them when we ask them, so they're good on the. Okay. All right. Who's got the hand behind you, or are you getting ready to say something? Uh, What are your thoughts on the some of the signs that? Pre-mill folks cite like the digital onset, one more government, one more currency, rebuilding the temple, things like that. Well, what do I think about the signs that are put forward by pre-mill, such as the rebuilding of the temple and uh, universal uh, coinage and one world government and all that kind of thing? They have constantly come up with this sign and that sign. They also do earthquakes in various places and all of that, and they constantly fail because they're not biblically biblically based. Uh, When you press them to look at their particular text they're looking at, many of them can be applied to the first century or whenever they were written and are not necessary for our times. And uh, they are misconstruing the scriptures, I believe, in so many of those. And So we just need to say, show me the Bible verse and explain the problem. And uh, then when you do that challenge, look at the context and you'll find that they're not able to support the challenge well. Can you ex- expound a little bit on the loosening of Satan and rebellion at the end of the millennium? Okay, the question is regarding the loosing of Satan at the end of the millennium, which is from Revelation 20. Uh, what I believe, as a post-millennialist, what I believe is uh, that there will be a time in history, in the future, not yet, obviously, in which Christianity will be the rule, not the exception to the rule. Christian principles will dominate in the affairs of mankind. Not each and every person will be converted, but the majority of men will be converted, and the rest of the population will basically go along with cultural Christianity because it works. And But then when God, for his own reasons, loses Satan at the end of that long period of time, which we're living in now, the the millennium is now, it's the time from the first century to the end, Uh, when he releases Satan, he does so to let uh, evil come to maturation, it comes to maturity, 
And then Satan will go out. He, remember, he was bound so that he not deceive the nations anymore. So now he's loosed so that he can begin that process of deceiving the nations. But in the context, it shows that he's not out long. God loses him, and then God judges him and those who are, are uh, brought into his rebellion against uh, the Christian faith. And the fact that he's loosed so that he can deceive in the future so shows that he's been constrained for a long time. So that helps us uh, in directly to promote the post-millennial hope. Uh, comments? Did all of y'all hear that joke on the canary or do I say it again? <laughs> Could you speak to uh, the use of Chilia throughout scripture and specifically how it's, how it's interpreted in Revelation? You do a great job on that. Well then you do. Oh, no, the okay. Uh, the question is regarding the Greek word kilia that's, and how it's used in Scripture. That's the word thousand. And that's why premillennialism in antiquity was called kiliasm because it's based on the word 1,000. The thousand year reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20 is the issue. But it is the only place in all of Scripture that Christ's kingdom is limited to a thousand years. Remember in Luke chapter 2, uh, the angel tells Mary he shall sit upon his throne and his kingdom shall be forever. And it doesn't limit it to a thousand year reign. And so in the book of Revelation, you've got the most symbolic book in all of Scripture. In fact, it opens with, uh, in Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to his servant John, to show him by signs, looked at in the Greek, by signs, what must shortly take place. And so it's a book that is signified or signified. It's a book of symbols. So when we read something from Revelation, we've got to suspect there's something else going on here than the direct literal reading. I don't believe there's going to be a literal seven-headed beast or a woman standing on the moon with the wings of an eagle. You know, all of these fire-breathing prophets and all of these horsemen, all of these things are obviously symbols. Well, the thousand years is a symbol. It's a, it's a figure 10 times 10 times 10, which is uh, 10 is the number of quantitative perfection. And so 10 multiplied 10 by 10 by 10 is an enormous perfection. You have the cattle on a thousand hills belonging to the Lord. God uh, blessing his people to a thousand generations. And this number thousand is used over and over again in scripture in a symbolic fashion to show a large quantity. And so the, it's a large quantity of years, but it's not 365,000 days. So that's, that's the way I understand the, uh, the, th the word, the number thousand in scripture. Yep, next time I come, we'll have to talk about the book of Revelation. That'll spin their hats, won't it? We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> <Earlier>, I don't. <laughs> on, a, on Friday, you mentioned that the Proto-Evangelion and uh, some other promises to Abraham, that we, the people, participate in the crushing of the head of the serpent, and we participate in, uh, you know, the inheritance of the nations. Could you explain that for those texts that are primarily seen to be fulfilled in Christ? Well, if they're fulfilled directly in Christ, it's true that they're fulfilled by Christ. But Christ has his body in the world. The body of Christ is in the world. And we have been commissioned by him in the Great Commission and other places to go out and make disciples of all the nations. Now, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit of Christ working through us to do that. And so we, we believe that 
People are not being saved because of what I have done, because of how wise I am in bringing the gospel to them, or how clever I am in presenting it. We believe that salvation comes because Christ is working in us to do of His will and His good pleasure. And so there are some texts that maybe it's talking of Christ particularly and personally doing something, but in generally they, these texts that speak of the glorious spread of the gospel are speaking of Christ as he works through his spirit-anointed people in the world to do his will. So I often get the question, and I answer it, but I just want to know if I'm answering it right. I'm often asked, how can you say Satan is bound if there's still evil in the world and I'm still tempted to, to sin? Okay, the question is, how can we say Satan is bound since there's still evil in the world. Well, where we get this notion of Satan being bound in the eschatological sense is in Revelation 20, which is a symbolic book already. And it specifically says he's bound that he not deceive the nations anymore. It doesn't say he's bound that he can, can do it, cannot do anything, but that he cannot hinder the gospel. Because Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of the nation. Christ's word has sent us out with the gospel. Satan is trying to prevent it, but he's not going to be able to prevent it. So in the context of that highly symbolic book, Revelation, in the context of Revelation 20, it clearly says that he's being bound that he not... Uh, uh, deceive the nations anymore. In other words, the Gentiles were dominated by Satan in the Old Testament. Now the gospel's gone out to relieve them of the dominance of Satan. In fact, Jesus himself says that he's binding the strong man in the first century, Matthew 12. He said, how can I spoil his goods, take away his demon-possessed people, and uh, unless I first bind the strong man? So the complaint should be against Christ himself. Yeah. My, my biggest... I've never been this perspective, never been pretty late. But uh, as an automobile security, it's cycles, like cycles, uh, good, bad, you know, hitters and men, one uh, worst part. And uh, my question is, suffering seems to have a role. Like, he makes perfect the captain of our salvation through suffering, that we also follow him as the pioneer of that path through suffering to glory. It seems to have a necessary thing. We must, through great tribulation, inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that um, if ch if children heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we might be glorified with Him. Uh, how does that work in a Long period of peace and prosperity. Okay. Uh, the questions regarding suffering, which is mentioned in the New Testament, is something that's necessary for us to enter the kingdom. I was looking to see if that book, all those books have been sold. I have one there called, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> Thine is the Kingdom. I, I just write them, I don't read them. Uh, I, I think it's Thine is the Kingdom. Uh, it's a blue book. I know what color it is. Uh, and it, it deals with that question in detail because it's responding to Dr. Richard Gaffin, an amillennial scholar who I greatly admire at Westminster Theological Seminary. And the fact is that the, most of the verses that people use about the suffering, if you look at them in context, he's talking about what they will be experiencing in the first century. So they need to know that they're going to suffer, but don't give up. 
Persevere to the end. Don't give up because victory lies off in the future. You're on the right side. You're on the winning side. We may not win in your lifetime, Christians of the first century. You may be thrown to the lines, but recognize this, that ultimately you're going to the kingdom of God in heaven above. And then there are times, like we've been saying, that there are perilous times that will come. There are seasons and epochs, etc., that will come, that will be trying times. Don't give up on that. Uh, on that basis because the truth will win out and you want to be on the right side in the end of history. But I've got a more detailed and better explanation in, my, in that book. So each of you ought to buy two copies each. Make sure I'm consistent. I think okay. few, what? You, I think a few people have this question on Second uh, Thessalonians 2 about the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. Where do you put that in history? Well, I believe the man of lawlessness is Nero Caesar. And the, uh, the one who restrains him. Notice he speaks in the present tense there. The one who is now restraining him. Well, it's interesting that Nero Caesar is the adoptive son of Claudius Caesar. And the name Claudius is based on the Latin word Claudere, which means uh, to... Uh, to oh, shoot, I'm drawing a middle blank here. It means to restrain. And so it's interesting that his father, as long as his father is on the throne, of, uh, is the emperor of Rome, Nero can't do anything because he's just a, an underling. But when his father Claudera dies, Claudius Caesar dies, then uh, the restraining on him is gone and he comes to the forefront. And uh, I've got that. Well, no, there you go. I've got a whole chapter in this book called Perilous Times that I deal with that. And I show all the... You'll have to... As you read the Second Thessalonians 2, you'll have to notice the present tense actions going on there. He's not talking about something way off in the future. He's talking about something that they are now experiencing. He, this man is already uh, restraining him. So, you know, you might want to look at that chapter. You can go on my uh, post-millennial worldview blog site and I've got that kind of information on there too. Okay. Uh, question about and pardon my ignorance around all of this, but uh, you know, Revelation 16, Matthew 24, and then first Thessalonians 5, you know, about Christ coming as a thief in the night and um, kind of kind of so I guess my question really is what is the day of the Lord as referenced in uh, first Thessalonians uh, five, he says, uh, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And you know, it makes me think, obviously, you know, God has begun a good work and you will bring its completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Are those similar? Are they the same? And um, is Jesus going to come like a thief in the night? To rescue his church. Okay. The question regards Jesus coming as a thief in the night and the day of the Lord concept in Scripture. One thing about the day of the Lord, it's in the singular, you'll notice, the day of the Lord. But it keeps repeatedly happening in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord against Idumea the gay, uh, in Isaiah 13. The day of the Lord against Babylon. The day of the Lord against Jerusalem. The day of the Lord concept is a day that God judges. And each of these historical Day of the Lord events point to a final, ultimate Day of the Lord event. And so there's one 
consummative day of the Lord event at the end of history when Christ comes and puts down all opposition and destroys death and establishes the eternal order. That is the ultimate day of the Lord. But all of these others are pointers to that. They're small pictures of it. It's kind of like we are new creations in Christ which points to the new creation at the end of history. We've been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places which points to the fact we'll be resurrected at the end of history. And uh, we have been justified by Christ which points to the final judgment at the end of history. So these uh, phenomena are pointers to the great and more uh, noble day of the Lord at the end of history. Well, and Christ does, will return as a thief in the sense that in Matthew 24, 36, he says, no man knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not even the Son of Man. So there's no way we can guess the date of Christ's return. And we shouldn't even try. It's interesting that so many dispensationalists like uh, Hal Lindsey, 1980's Countdown to Armageddon, he's effectively telling us when Christ is going to come in his view. But we are discouraged from doing that in Scripture. And so, yes, when he comes, it will be like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. There are several parables in Matthew 24 and 25 that say the same thing there as well as that. And by the way, a day of the Lord in history, not only against Idumea, Babylon, and uh, Jerusalem, but there's one against Jerusalem in the first century when the temple's destroyed. That is a, a day of the Lord that is a notable one uh, that's mentioned in Acts chapter 2 when the uh, speaking in tongues erupts and the Spirit is poured out on the church before the great and notable day of the Lord. Matt, were you going to say something else? One more. Just a question I have recently. John text you brought up this morning about uh, judgment is on the ruler of the world, now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. But in 1 John 5, 19, it talks about that uh, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the power or in the power of the evil. That was really the only text that I could find the resurrection that seems to say that. Everything else is like it's, it's oh. Christ now. But well, you've got this one that it, it, it's stuck in my crawl a little bit. I didn't really know what to do with it. Good. I'm going to let you suffer and not answer that. <laughs> uh, one way, I'm writing a book, researching a book right now called The Two-Age Doctrine. Something so, it's fascinating to me. I don't know. Once I get it out, people might say, so what? But the scriptures teach that history is basically two ages. The age under Adam and the age under Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam. The, age, the present age is the sinful era in which we live from the fall of Adam to, the, to Christ returns. And the coming age is the age that comes when Christ returns at the end of history and establishes the consummate order where there will be no more sin and suffering and dissolution and death and such. So we've got those two ages. But now we're living in what's called an overlap of the ages. And that's why in Hebrews 6 it tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us that uh, I wish I, I can't believe I didn't bring my Bible to a Bible conference. It's so aggravating. But Hebrews 6, he said, we are now tasting the powers of the age to come. And uh, 
some of the things I just mentioned we're new creation that has to do with the age to come of the ultimate new creation we're resurrected now tasting that power but we're really going to taste it when we have a physical resurrection and uh, we're justified now but we're going to be finally and permanently justified at the end of history we're sanctified now but at the end of history when we get our bodies back we're perfectly sanctified and so I, uh, that verse there is talking in the overlap period which is the period we're living in now from the first century and so Satan does have uh, authority over the fallen world but he does not have power over the fallen world such as he has before uh, the Christ came into the world you know there's time for one more joke the po- I'm going to tell my joke first the Pope is giving a uh, mass, a great outdoor mass in Denver, and he goes a little long, and he, he says, for goodness sake, I've got to de- get down to Colorado Springs and do another massive uh, event down there. So he told his driver, he's got a limo driver there, he said, son, would you mind speeding up and getting me to Colorado Springs? I've got another big outdoor mass to do. He says, father, I, I can't do that. Uh, if I lose my license, I lose my Occupation. I'm a limo driver. I wouldn't have any way to make any money to support my family. So the Pope says, well, would you mind if I drive and I'll, I'll get us there? And he says, well, sure. So the, uh, the limo driver gets in the back seat. The Pope gets behind the wheel and is shooting down the highway and a policeman pulls him over. The policeman comes up and looks in there, sees the Pope in his white outfit and all that. And he goes back to the car and he calls in headquarters and he says, uh, I've got a problem here. I don't know what to do. And they said, what is it? I said, I just pulled over somebody speeding, and he's very important. They said, well, is it the mayor? I said, no, more important than the mayor. Is it the governor? No, much more important than the governor. Well, who in the world is it? He said, I don't know who he is, but the Pope is his limo driver. (laughs) Uh, I I got enough laughs out of that, I'm going to try another one. This uh, policeman was called, uh, was out on patrol, and headquarters called in and said, "There's been a shooting two blocks from where you are. Where you are, go check it out." So he went there and checked, and he called in headquarters and said, "There has been a shooting. A wife shot her husband for walking on a newly mopped floor." And they said, "The headquarters said, well, have you arrested her yet?'" He said, "No, the floor's still wet." <laughs> Well, verses that sound like it's imminent. You'd have to give particular verses because uh, some of them are simply misinterpreted. And we've got to always recognize that they didn't know when he was returning. And so they couldn't be for sure that it's going to be a long time. They might have misinterpreted the long-term parables or something. And so we've got to recognize that they don't know. And so he has to speak with hesitancy in that regard. Well, all right. Good. Appreciate it. And I I love this church, and I'm so glad to know they're vibrant Christians like you folks up here. And uh, but I'm not surprised it's in Tennessee. That's where I'm from. And I thought I'd what? That's it. Yep. That's right. Well, okay. Well, thanks for listening. I very much appreciate it.